just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Clary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under 80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. 
and we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story, and... Yeah, that's what we've got going on. Some spooky stories for you to listen to with some cool, snary drums going on in the background. And, yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. And if you are lucky enough at the very beginning of October, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and there is also going to be a second H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing. Check us out on there. Dave's got some stuff going on on that. I'm going to have some stuff going on on that. And also, I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Taza Chocolate, Stone Ground Chocolate. And you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy, they have dairy-free chocolates. They, they, they use dairy alternatives, uh, minimally processed, of course, organic. I love them. You love them. Toss of chocolates. They, they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? I don't know, sit down with a nice warm beverage. We've got the tea that you can get. We've got the coffee you can get. I don't know, maybe microwave some psychedelic water, baby. Ghostly Horror Stories. Read by Dale Grothman. From the land of spirits she came to him, and he was afraid. Candlelight by Louise Garwood. David closed the great oak door behind his departing guests, happy at last to hear their laughter and their footsteps mingle with the patter of rain outside. How long had they stayed and tired him with their good-natured talk? And they could never have understood why he wanted to be alone. Now his silent house was left all to him, and he might abandon his mind to the memories which seemed to creep like specters from the dusty corners and faded curtains, to the strange dream that he had borne in his heart so long. He walked across the thick carpet to the fireplace, where the embers were smoldering and casting a glow on the hearth. From overhead on the mantel, the light of the candelabra flickered and danced down about his graying hair. He heard the drip-drip of the rain on the casement sills. Then a gust of wind crowded the drops into a flurry. Hush, hush, it seemed to say. Was it wind or a sigh? He started. There was the odor of violets again. He walked to the window and opened it so that the damp air blew upon him, and his face twisted in his effort to speak aloud but he could only whisper, Eleanor. Drip, drip, patter, patter, answered the rain. He closed the window and sighed, went back to stare once more at the embers and press his temples with cold fingers. Yes, she would come back. She would come back to the old house, which had grown musty and dismal for want of her to him, David whose heart had grown musty and dismal 
for the want of her. She had promised to come back again sometime in early spring, and he had waited through the years, so long that his hair had grown touched with gray and his face had become lined. But now it would be different. He knew that she was near. Else why that sound of muffled footsteps he had heard of late, sometimes following, sometimes going before him over the velvet carpet through the lonely halls. The swish of curtains that had moved as if from a person passing by. The odor of violets here and there, her violets. And strangest of all, the little yellowed handkerchief he had found in the carven chair the handkerchief belonging in the chest where he kept the trifles she had once used. Around it, too, clung the breath of violets, together with the same odor that had given forth by the sunless rooms downstairs. The chest was always locked, yet he had found the kerchief. Eleanor, where are you? His own voice startled him. He suddenly saw that the ashes in the grate were no longer smoldering rosily. They were getting gray. It must be time for him to go to bed. So after he put the screen around the fireplace, he began to extinguish the lights on the mantel, taking one from its socket to guide him up the stairway. The last one of all he left burning. For her, he thought, and gave a whimsical smile. Then he turned and left the room to its fantastic shadows, to the whispering of the wind, to the soft laughter, which is really the patter of raindrops against the sills. Above, on the high ceiling, danced the flickering light of the candles, while before him, gaunt and tall, moved his own shadow, and it fluttered ahead as he hastened up the steps. At the landing, where the stairway divided into two smaller flights, he turned, and after ascending the one that led to the right wing of the house, crossed the narrow hall into his room. Here, with fresh tapers lighted, and his favorite armchair and books, it did not seem so lonely. Yet he did not wish to read. He wanted to open the small chest and look at its array of relics, one by one. When he unlocked it, a musty sweetness stole out. Sitting there, he fingered the yellow handkerchief, the silk fan with the flowers painted on it, the gloves, yellow also now. The human hands that had worn them could never touch him again. Tears and prayers might bring her spirit back, but they could never restore those warm hands to his clasp. Then he unfolded a scarf, how sheer and delicate it was, like her, how it breathed of her. He buried his face in it. Oh, my dear, you promised. I have waited so long. Aren't you coming back? It's been lonely, Eleanor. The scarf fell from his hands. What was that noise? He rose, straining to hear peering out into the darkness of the stair landing, then sank back again. Of course, the casement in the library. It had not been repaired, and the March wind was making it rattle. 
but he had best not worry to go down and fasten it. There were other things to look at, as if he had not gone over them a thousand times before. The pretty brooch, the comb, the letters written in faded ink. He was reading one of these letters when, as the wind died down, he heard through the steady pour of the rain a sound that was not the rattling of the casement. It was distinct and clear. Click, clack. David wanted to go to the door, but he could not move except to rise and stand motionless in front of his chair as the kerchief, brooch, and letters fell and scattered on the floor. His heart beat hard and sent a wave of red into his face. Click, clack. A footstep on the uncarpeted stair. The light touch of a woman's slipper. Click. The rain came steadily down. He waited. The visitor seemed to have paused. In a moment the steps began again and came up slowly. One, two, three, four, five. There were thirteen before the landing could be reached. Click, clack, click. Eight, nine, ten, clack. At last he saw something. It was an areola of light which, as the steps came nearer, grew into a semicircle. Candlelight, but no shadow fell before it. Advancing within the light was the outline of a head of dark hair, then a white neck and shoulders, until finally upon the landing stood a slim figure clad in a pale robe. A hand rose to shade the candle, and slowly the figure turned and looked up toward him with large eyes. A thick braid fell over each shoulder. David tried to hold out his arms. They were leaden. Eleanor, he tried to call. A gasp came from between his parted lips. And she stayed there a minute, smiling, then came toward him up the smaller steps. Click, clack, click, very slowly. And after crossing the hall, she stood in the doorway of his room. There she paused again, and those tender words of welcome, which he had yearned to say through all the years, could not come. A strange timidity held him back from her. He wanted to fall upon his knees and cry. At last he uttered haltingly words, you, you have come. Yes, David, I have come. Her voice was calm and sweet. She advanced. Her dainty slippers touched the carpet noiselessly, and her long garment dragged behind with a sighing sound. When she reached the table where the lights were, she put her candle in the empty bracket, then sat down on a low stool facing David. It did not seem that she thought of coming nearer. How different this was from the meeting he had dreamed of. His own voice was calm as he said, Why did you not come before? I have waited so long, darling. He stepped toward her, but leaned back against the table as he saw that she shrank away. Her eyes grew wide. 
It has not been long. It has only been a little while. The wind whined through the gables outside. David watched her draw the white robes close around her, while a new loneliness rose in his heart. Has it seemed short to you then? Oh, the long, long years, Eleanor. They have made me old. And you say, a little while? Why were they so strangely calm? Why were they not in each other's arms with that sweet, warm embrace of old? The smile was gone from her lips now. She said mournfully, I have tried to come to you so many, many times, and I could not. Sometimes I was at your window whispering to you. Then I would laugh and tap the panes, but you never heard. How could I know? He shook his head. She sighed, and it seemed that there were violets in the room. I am glad to be here. I am glad to be near you, David. She drew the robe closer about her again. It was lonely and cold. David shuddered. Where? Where was it lonely and cold? She made a vague gesture that caused the open sleeve to fall back from her arm. Out there! After a few minutes, she looked down at the things which lay on the floor at their feet, and the open chest. What are these? Once more that queer loneliness. Don't you know, Eleanor? Surely you remember. No. Why, they are your own. Your letter, dear. The comb that you wore in your hair. How small and like a child she looked as she slipped down from the stool and knelt above the relics. She held up the yellowed handkerchief and looked at him with a question in her eyes. This, David, I think I remember. He shuddered again. After that she looked no more at the things, but straight up into his eyes. I like to be here, she said simply. It is warm and sweet where you are, David. His heart beat faster as he looked down and saw something of the old light burning in those strange eyes. And I am old, Eleanor. I grew old when you left me. Everything grew old and musty and dismal when you went away. He motioned to the ceiling with bits of cobwebs in its corners, to the faded carpet. But you are young and beautiful. She gave a laugh that sounded like the patter of rain against the casement. No, no, it is you who are young. I am not young. The eerie laugh pattered again. David, I... She seemed to be groping for words she could scarcely remember. I love you. She rose. She stretched out her white arms. She was coming toward him. He shivered and grew cold as she grew nearer. Her arms touched him. He shrank away. They encircled him. He tried to pull back, but he was held by terror. Her icy lips were seeking his. The fragrance of violets was heavy in his nostrils and deadly, and heavier still, the damp, moist odor of the mold around their roots 
don't, don't, he cried. You are, oh God, go away. The white arms fell from around him, and she cringed. He looked into the eyes of unutterable sadness. Then she covered her face with her slender hands, and rocked her body to and fro, moaning, Oh, 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 I tried and tried to come, and I came to you at last, and you were afraid. You are afraid of me. He could not speak. He clung to the table, weeping. The mournful voice went on. I must go away. It will be lonely and cold, and I can never come back any more. Slowly, she went over to where the candles burned and lifted one from the bracket, shading it with her hand. She turned her piteous face toward him again, crooning the words over and over to herself, as if they were a weird song. You were afraid. And now she was walking through the doorway, the long garment trailing behind her, the dark braids swinging loosely. David could not follow. Come back, come back, he tried to call, but the words were only a whisper. Click, clack, click, clack. Then, click, clack again, further and further away. He listened and watched until the halo of light grew smaller and smaller and the footsteps died off in the silence, while the wind and rain outside sounded as if they had taken up the burden of her moaning. Oh, 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 I came to you, and you were afraid. A sharp pain. David jerked his head up. It had struck the wooden chest that lay on his knees. How strange. He could not remember having sat down again, or having gathered the things from the floor. Stranger still, the candles which had been only half burned when she was there, flickered fitfully in their sockets, ready to expire. One at a time the flames fluttered and went out. The next morning was bright and sunshiny, the sky all blue, and the trees and flowers were fresher from the last night's rain. As David looked out the window, the air was sweet, and he saw that the gardener had been putting out the new violet plants. From all around the garden their blooms looked up at him with bright faces, where drops of moisture lingered, shining like tears. Later, as he walked down the staircase, he found spots of the candle drip all the way and the last socket of the brass candelabra on the mantel was empty. The End of Candlelight by Louise Garwood Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger. I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour 
of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Oh, Larry. Find, find student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Larry. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design. Not graphic design, graphic novels. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGPTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta 8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta 8. Yeah. Uh, you can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at... Uh, what's what's Golden Goat CBD, one of our sponsors? Yeah, you can get some Delta 8, and you can also pick up some CBD chewables gummies. They've got smokables for the Delta 8, and they've got all kinds of stuff for CBD, and they can help you out. Uh, Check the show notes, Golden Goat. And while you're in the show notes, hey, do you know about Donner? Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos, they've got drums, they've got amplifiers, they've got guitars, they've got all kinds of stuff and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're gonna like it. And I think Donner's gonna have a good deal for you. So I I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner and check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who 
you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Yeah. The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe The thousand injuries of Fortunado I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible, and in the middle of the carnival. I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado. I have my doubts. Amontillado. And I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If anyone has a critical turn, this is he. He will tell me 
Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry, and yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchese, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Montiardo. You have been imposed upon, and as for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm. Putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roquelaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honour of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, said he. It is farther on, said I, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nitre? he asked at length. Nitre, I replied. How long have you had that cough? friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchese. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True. True, I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution. A draught of this Madoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, 
to the buried that repose around us, and I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacassid. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Madoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said, see it increases, it hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough, it is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draught of the Madoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Graaf. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said, a sign. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roquelaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains piled to the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. 
It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavoured to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination, the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said, herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchese, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet, horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labours and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished, without interruption, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamoured. I re-echoed, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamourer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. 
I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognising as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed, an excellent jest. We shall have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo, <laughs> over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunado. No answer. I called again, Fortunado. No answer still. I thrust the torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in reply only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick, not on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labour. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century no mortal has disturbed them. Impace requiesca. End of the Cask of Amontillado. Show notes. Check them out. That's where you're going to find sponsors and guests and T-shirts and stickers and high fives. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the show. Music is by me, D.B. Spitzer, edited and produced by me, D.B. Spitzer. The interview portions are always edited and produced by David Heath. And hey, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. So check out pgttcm.com. And if you don't want to check out the Patreon, if you don't want to do that, and you want to help out the show, just go to sponsors or buy t-shirts or anything like that. Anything helps. Thank you again.